think there was a bit of chest thumping that was going on that during that press conference, and it was designed for an audience of one. It was designed for the president so he could see his attorney general acting all tough, and he's going to take on the leakers, and he's going to reevaluate the relationship between the federal government and the media. It was nothing. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, executive editor for News, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined in the studio by Bradley Mouse and Jenna McLaughlin. Brad is an attorney specializing in litigation on matters relating to national security, federal employment, and security clearance law, and the Freedom of Information Act. He is also deputy executive director of the James Madison Project. Jenna is an intelligence reporter for foreign policy, focusing on the culture, dynamics, and events happening in the National Security Agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the other members of the intelligence community. And joining us via Skype is Trevor Tim. Trevor is a co-founder and executive director of the Freedom of the Press Foundation. He's a journalist, activist, and lawyer who writes a weekly column for The Guardian on privacy, free speech, and national security. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at forumpolicy.com. So last week, the Washington Post published the full transcripts of Trump's early calls with his counterparts in Mexico and Australia. And it seemed to spark something of a reaction. David Frum, a George W. Bush uh, speechwriter and currently the editor of The Atlantic, wrote that leaking the transcripts of a presidential call to a foreign leader is unprecedented, shocking, and dangerous. Um, So I actually wanted to first turn to Trevor. Do you think that's really true? Is it that unprecedented and shocking? Uh, Well, it's certainly rare. I wouldn't call it shocking. You know, I think that, first of all, a couple of these calls, portions of them were leaked uh, a couple months ago. Um, But what I think David Frum is really getting into kind of hyperbole and exaggeration here when later in the piece he talks about how no foreign leader will ever call uh, the president (laughs) again or uh, will never be able to speak frankly with another American diplomat. And I th- frankly, I think that's ridiculous. You know, when we're talking about potential harm to national security, um, I think we should stay grounded in reality and look at what was actually released. And I think if you read the transcripts, you'll see that um, there was virtually nothing sensitive in those calls. And it seems that people are more concerned about some sort of hypothetical future event where there is some sort of extremely sensitive phone call that gets hosted on the internet, which is just not how these things work. Um, I think that it's important to realize that what was actually in the transcript was um, incredibly newsworthy. Even if this is an extreme situation, you know, we, we are in uh, an extreme presidency where the, the president, Donald Trump, is tweeting every single week uh, about fake news that appears in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, and if he's going to call every story that comes out uh, based on anonymous sources fake, then posting transcripts is actually a great way to refute him. Um, and I think that The Washington Post did a service here. Uh, Brad, what would you tell federal employees thinking of leaking the entire transcript of a presidential call? Well, really simple. If you're going to do that, prepare for your job to be over and possibly going to jail if you're caught. Uh, so, you know, hearing Trevor's explanation, I have to almost somewhat agree with him and somewhat disagree with him in different parts. So, There is certainly a newsworthy aspect to this, especially given the president's tweets about it back in, I think it was January, February, and was calling it all fake news, saying none of this actually occurred, it's inaccurate. Yeah, okay, so to the extent that you're proving the president wrong, okay, there's a newsworthy aspect of that. I can understand that. But the concern, while I certainly understand Trevor's view and that this is too hyperbolic and that we're just floating out hypotheticals, there is a legitimate worry and a legitimate uh, concern that foreign leaders, while they're not going to stop talking to American presidents, they are going to hold back or be somewhat more cautious in how they even have 
these kinds of conversations, what they'll say substantively, out of concern that it will leak and that it will harm the future ability of the countries to be able to negotiate in matters in good faith, knowing that eventually someone else is going to see it. I mean, people have confidential conversations in all manner of private and government uh, activities on a daily basis under the assumption that you're doing it in confidence and you're doing it with the ability to have a full, candid conversation. If you knew that your conversation was going to be read by everybody who had access to the internet, you might frame and discuss things in a different manner. And that's the concern. That's what I think what David was trying to get at here. But then why why not have the same concern about the leak of the Duterte transcript? Now, I know that was leaked from the Philippines side, but shouldn't those same issues be in play? Well, sure. But that's also something they didn't necessarily, we didn't necessarily have a control over. That was leaked right. on, the, on the Philippines side. So we can't control that. And that's certainly a legitimate concern they have to worry about over there in terms of how American presidents will communicate with them going forward if we believe that they can't keep uh, their own house secure and they can't maintain security over their own records. We can only handle what happens in the American side right. um, in, terms of, in terms of what our government handles and how they protect our information. Right. Well, of course, the, the immediate response was the, the Jeff Sessions press conference where he talks about that this nation must end the culture of leaks. We will investigate and seek to bring the criminals to justice. We will not allow rogue anonymous sources with security clearances to sell out our country any longer. And this sparked a conversation that Jen and I had this morning. What actually is the process? When there is a leak of classified information, there's pretty much an automatic investigation, right? So, Brad, can you walk us through what actually happens in government when a secret or top secret document is leaked? Sure. So the agency from which the document or the information at issue originated will start an internal inquiry trying to figure out what batch of individuals or pool of individuals would have had access to the records. They'll pull up the login files. Everybody who works in the government, particularly those with access to class information, have something equivalent of a CAC card, a common access card, and it tracks your login and log out and tracks what you accessed. So they can try to narrow it down to see who would have had access to the records, if those people printed it or if they tried to transfer it from one system to another. And if they are able to locate the individual and they are able to determine if they had been the one who had leaked, they can take a number of actions. One is they'll refer it to the Justice Department. By and large, DOJ normally doesn't prosecute. Once in a while, they will. Maybe we'll have some more now here. I don't know yet. But generally what happen is the agencies will just take an administrative action. They'll move to revoke your clearance and they'll move to fire you. And they're generally content with that. But if someone has deliberately and intentionally leaked classified information and the agency identifies that person and it goes to DOJ, DOJ would have all manner of legitimacy and authority to prosecute him for it. So, Trevor, what has happened? I mean, this is going back to the Obama administration where there was a significant uptick in prosecutions. Um, so I have two questions for you. One is what what sparked that? And second, do you do we actually see evidence yet of more prosecutions under the Trump administration? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think there are a variety of factors. You know, when you look at before the Obama administration um, in the modern era, and we're talking like uh, basically Nixon onward, uh, there was only three leak prosecutions in those 40 odd years. Uh, and then, you know, towards the end of the Bush administration, um, and then in the first term of the Obama administration, uh, there was eight more prosecutions. Um, so more than all of those other administrations combined. You know, it's not like uh, leaking was just invented a decade ago. You know, this is uh, newspapers have been publishing classified information regularly since the early 1970s and uh, 1960s as, you know, sparked by uh, the Pentagon Papers case and Daniel Ellsberg. How has technology changed the nature of leaks and the leak investigations? 
But I think that technology is, is the big reason why the Obama administration conducted more leak prosecutions than all other administrations combined. You know, for decades, journalists were subpoenaed to testify against their sources in court and could refuse and even go to jail. But what they figured out, uh, you know, what the government figured out almost, uh, almost a decade ago was the fact that they don't really need journalists to testify anymore. They can serve a court order on a Google or a Facebook or an AT&T or a Verizon to collect all sorts of phone call and email and communications records, which tells them who reporters are talking to, when they're talking to them, for how long, um, and can uh, paint a very detailed picture of who may and may not be leaking to them. And so this has given the government uh, an easy way and a, a less controversial way, at least in the eyes of reporters, uh, to go after leakers. And the Trump administration is only continuing this. Um, you know, we've only seen uh, one public indictment so far um, of leak cases under the Trump administration, and that's Reality Winner, um, who is alleged to have leaked the documents to The Intercept. But, you know, these, take, these cases take time. Uh, there has to be an investigation. Oftentimes the indictment is sealed at first, and the Trump administration is only six or seven months old. So I don't think that we'll, we'll understand the true nature of their leak crackdown, uh, at least for another six months, maybe another year. Well, let's talk about that one case under the Trump administration for a minute, the the reality winner who is alleged to have leaked a top-secret National Security Agency document, allegedly to The Intercept. Is that being prosecuted now? Is that going any different direction under the Trump administration than it would have under the Obama administration? I'll ask Brad that. I don't see it being any different. I think if – I mean, it was – pretty much, you know, easy pickings for the Trump administration. I think this had happened in any administration. They would have gone after uh, someone like Reality Winner and the prosecution's proceeding along that same path. So I don't see anything different on that front. Well, actually, according to Sessions, there are four cases right now. Well, actually, that, yeah, I was just going to say that, that that statement was very misleading by Sessions because I, he I said agree. that there was, four, there was four cases of people making unauthorized disclosures to the media or having unauthorized contacts with foreign agents. Um, so those other three cases could be actual spy cases rather than uh, leak cases, which is part of the problem here, which is they're conflating uh, people spying for foreign countries uh, with informing the American public. Yeah. The other three, so one of the other three was Harold Martin, who basically was hoarding for 20-something years <laughs> all the NSA documents. Uh, and I think the two others that were identified was – one was someone who was – I think was trying to sell it to Chinese uh, intelligence. It was actually a sting operation. The other one was just these unauthorized conversations. The only leak prosecution so far is reality winner. Right. Well, let's let's differentiate then, of course, for a second between, you know, the leaks of classified information versus just leaks that are coming out of the administration. We had that famous quote from Anthony Scaramucci in his short-lived time as White House communications director where he said, what I want to do is fucking kill all the leakers. Um, Jenna, have you noticed, I mean, in your in your interactions with sources, what is their reaction to actual concerns under the current administration? Well, there's certainly a fear among people, uh, whether they're within the White House or removed from it, um, formers, etc. There's this fear of being labeled as a leaker, whether or not they're actually exposing classified information or information that really needs to be protected. They have the sense that um, people are going to start screaming at them as members of the deep state, things like that. And it, it makes it harder to kind of have more open conversations with people about things that are actually of real newsworthy concern. 
Well, apparently the interns aren't so concerned. Why don't you tell us about uh, last week? Was it last week already? Yeah, I guess it was last week. Time really flies. And what Um, was it? So uh, the interns have kind of a summer session where they hear from different speakers, uh, a speech series. And last week, Jared Kushner spoke to all of these congressional interns. And I got access to his remarks, uh, notes about his remarks, and reported that he kind of was joking offhandedly about the Russia investigation and things like that and kind of expected those remarks to not be exposed to uh, the rest of the public. A large group of interns. Exactly. And I'm not sure why he thought that that wouldn't be prime real estate for those interns to share. <laughs> and giving them really bad guidance on filling out the standard form 86. Yeah. Horrible guidance. Yeah. <laughs> what was that guidance? He was saying the only thing you have to worry about on your security clearance paperwork is your foreign travel, to which all of us who handle clearance actions for a living are sitting there going, oh my God, no, that's so not true. There's so many other things. It's just your problem. But maybe problem. that's a plausible that was just, I was saying, <laughs> part. You just didn't know. I was like, wow. If, I, if he can use that defense, I've got a whole line of clients who love to be able to use the Jared Kushner defense. The right. agencies laughed him out of the room. Well, what? So, I mean, going back to the last week's press conference from Sessions, it, it feels like the administration, or at least the Justice Department, it doesn't really know what they're doing differently. I mean, just so just over the weekend, the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, went on TV on Fox News, and he sort of backed, or it seemed like he backtracked a little bit, saying, quote, we don't prosecute journalists for doing their jobs. That's not our goal here. And that seems to be at least somewhat different from what Sessions said. Am I correct? Yeah, I think there was a bit of chest thumping that was going on that during that press conference, and it was designed for an audience of one. It was designed for the president so he could see his attorney general <laughs> acting all tough, and he's going to take on the leakers, and he's going to reevaluate evaluate the uh, relationship between the federal government and the media. It was nothing. It was a complete nothing burger. It changed nothing of substance unless they were to revise the media guidelines, which were just revised two years ago under Attorney General uh, Eric Holder in the aftermath of the James Rose and in the Associated Press incidents with respect to subpoenas and search warrants. I don't see that having any change, any difference in terms of how the federal government's going to treat the media in terms of whether to prosecute journalists. I don't think that's a constitutional hill they want to die on, trying to prosecute a journalist for publishing classified information. It'd be a disaster. They might play in the gray area and use some of the discretion that the Obama and the Bush administrations gave them with precedent in terms of how much to probe into what journalists have done and try to gather some, get access to some of their records. That's certainly a concern. It's certainly something to be monitored and to overseen and see how they... Uh, play around in that gray area. But beyond that, that press conference was nothing. All right. Trevor, from your perspective, are you concerned about them revisiting that 2015 guidance? Oh, I'm absolutely concerned. I mean, the only thing that that is, you know, upholding that guidance is the attorney general. And Jeff Sessions is able to change those guidelines at his whim. And we know that Jeff Sessions has a long history of uh, not really liking uh, press freedom rights. Um, and has uh, been against shield laws that have been proposed in Congress in the past. Uh, And this is a way to get around directly prosecuting journalists while still potentially putting some in jail, because the Justice Department knows that most journalists are going to refuse to testify and eventually be held in contempt of court, where they could face uh, a serious threat of jail time. And, you know, the Obama administration changed these guidelines to make them stricter, in part because of a backlash against their leaked prosecutions and their surveillance of journalists during their first term. I'm not sure that the Trump administration is uh, responds to pressure 
from news organizations like the Trump administration does because they welcome that fight. The, the Obama administration, you know, Eric Holder even mentioned uh, after he left office that one of his biggest regrets was going after some of these journalists so aggressively. But uh, do we really expect Jeff Sessions to have the same feelings? I really doubt it. He might be looking forward to this fight. Mm-hmm. Trevor, you've written a lot about the problems with using the Espionage Act against leakers and about how it prohibits them from explaining their motives to juries. I, as you said, you know, that, that motive of informing the public. I mean, as a journalist, I'm sort of, you know, I'm very happy to receive leaks that are in the public interest. But how would that actually play out in court if they were allowed to argue the public interest? I mean, presumably anyone who releases anything could argue there is a public interest. So who is it then left to the judge and jury? to determine whether there's a public interest in it? What, what are the, the pitfalls or the advantages of that? Right. It's a really fascinating and um, disturbing topic because, you know, the Espionage Act was written in World War I. It's over 100 years old. actually just had its 100-year anniversary last month. And it's written so broadly that it basically prohibits all unauthorized disclosures of national defense information. So, you know, when they wrote it, it was, a t- it was intended to be used for spies who were essentially selling information to foreign governments. Uh, but in the past 50 years, it's kind of turned into this uh, anti-leak statute where the prosecution really only has to prove that there was an unauthorized disclosure of national defense information. They don't have to prove that it actually damaged national security. And because there is very little intent requirement in the statute, which means that they don't have to prove that the source intended to harm national security or even potentially or, or even intended to potentially harm national security. All they have to do is prove that they handed information over that they shouldn't have. So that means that judges have been ruling um, that defendants cannot tell the jury why they may have leaked something. So they can't say, you know, I saw something wrong going on in government and, and uh, the internal processes were broken and uh, I wanted the American public to find out about this. Uh, this, this type of information is inadmissible, and the jury will never, never hear it. So what this means is that oftentimes these cases are pretty much open and shut, and defendants often take deals because they know that they're going to be found guilty. Um, and in cases of you know, whistleblowers going to the press, I strongly believe there should be some sort of public interest defense, uh, which allows them to at least make this argument to the jury so they can at least have a balancing test where we can look at, okay, what is the public benefit of these leaks? Um, what is the actual harm to national security? And if there is no harm and there is benefit, uh, then they shouldn't be prosecuted under a statute made for spies. I see Brad shaking his head here, so I'm going to let him weigh in. And, tr- and Trevor and I have had this argument before, and I'm sure we'll have one again in the future. Yes. Yeah, so this is the problem with Trevor's view in terms of how to do this, and I understand where he's coming from with it, is that it puts the entire idea of what is protected, what should be safeguarded into the hands of people who have not had access to the overarching and the full scope of information, who don't hold clearances, who haven't been vetted for it, and it removes it from those who have been trained in that context into a jury of our quote-unquote peers. So, and to clarify, yes, under the current law, the way it's currently been designed 100-something years ago, and the way it's been upheld by the courts as constitutional, at least for now, is that at the culpability stage and simply deciding if the person has violated law and they are culpable and they can be convicted, yes, it's there's no public interest defense, it would be excluded. What 
often gets overlooked is it can then be brought up later in the sentencing stage. And this is what Chelsea Manning was able to use to bring down the and reduce the level of punishment to which she was going to be uh, subject. And it was originally supposed to be life in prison or something along those lines. It became 35 years which until— is, Which was still quite harsh. Yeah, which was yeah. still harsh, but it was—and mind you, given yes. the, the breadth of information that she had leaked— you could still understand, not necessarily agreeing or condoning either side of it, you can understand the reason for that level of punishment from a strictly leak, uh, strictly concept of how much information you have disclosed, how much information you took out of the authorized place and placed it into the public's uh, access. So, But even there, she was able to use that to reduce the sentence. And of course, President Obama commuted the remainder of the sentence after seven years. So there is an ability to use the public interest, it's simply not at the stage. It's not. There's no idea of jury nullification, which is what some individuals, I want to put words in their mouth, seem to be moving towards. They want to be able to say, if I decide I'm a 29-year-old uh, official with a clearance and I have documents that I think the public should see, I can leak it and then nullify it all by saying, look at what our government does. Yes, our government does some very shady things, and a lot of it is because it's a very shady world. And there's a reason why people are vetted for clearances. There's a reason why a lot of this activity goes on in the dark. It doesn't make it right, but there's a question of should the law be changed for that? That's up to Congress to decide. But right now, as far as the courts are concerned, it's still constitutional to do it this way. So, I mean, sort of in your view, what you would advise clients is never leak classified information. That there's I, never a justification. I, be will, your. I will never, ever tell a client leak classified information. I simply won't do it. If, right. they want to, if they want to do it, I'll say, you go somewhere else. Well, that's We're a legalistic <laughs> view. I mean, yeah. do you differentiate between a legalistic view and anything else, or that's just the view? Well, no. It, it, yeah. as, from an ethical standpoint, right. as an attorney, I can't advise yes, someone to commit that crime. I simply can't do it, nor would I. I don't believe in going through that type of action. I don't believe, no, you know, there, there are going to be things that you want to expose that there's not going to be a safe way to do it, and that sometimes you just don't get to expose it, and that's part of reality that's part of the big big bad world that's not a great answer that's not a great way to view the things you can view the world but that's the reality of what we live in there are ways to try to bring concerns internally i've certainly handled several of those instances no one knows about them because they were all resolved internally is the process and this is and trevor and i agree the process is not by no means a good one the internal whistleblowing process there's a lot of flaws in terms of the extent to which people have protections but if you want to raise concerns about fraud, waste, abuse, illegal conduct, there is one way that will guarantee you that if you're ever caught, you are losing your job, your clearance, and possibly going to jail, and that's leaking it. There's another way which gives you the possibility, not a guarantee, but a possibility of having your concerns at least heard, if not addressed, and you can go back to your job. And that way is going through what I would do, which is to use the whistleblower process. Right. Well, Jenna, you know, we come at this from the standpoint of journalists. And I think we were just discussing the other week, I think, in the contents of an NSA document, an older one, of, you know, what is the role of journalists with classified information? You know, in your view, how do we determine what's newsworthy or what's in the public interest versus what could be a legitimate national security concern? What are the questions you ask yourself? Absolutely. And I mean, I don't know, just ask myself about those kind of things. I do Hopefully ask, you ask me. <laughs> I do ask you, of course. Um, but I, I also ask sources who have worked in the context of those things and have the broader picture in mind um, and might be able to say, you know, by disclosing this, you prove that, you know, something the president said was stupid. However, by doing that, you also expose exactly how we track a certain hacking group, you know, and by doing that, they see 
what we know about them and they see where we see their flaws and therefore they can go and they can fix those things. Um, so by getting that kind of half of it, sometimes you reevaluate and you think, you know, maybe this isn't the kind of thing that I want to disclose in full. Maybe this is something that I want to look at and edit out parts of it. Um, it's it's more than just me as the journalist and you as the editor, I think, just saying, you know, I would want to know this, right. I think. Uh, Trevor, let me play devil's advocate for a second. I mean, against you, but also against ourselves. So if we look at, you know, Edward Snowden or Reality Winner, are, are there, I mean, you're not so much defending, and if I, if I misstate your case, I mean, please correct me, you're not so much defending particular people as you are criticizing the use of the Espionage Act against these people. But are there ever cases, I mean, are there um, leaks that give you pause that you think maybe that shouldn't have been done or is that simply not your role in the process? You know, I think there is a couple things to look at here. First, uh, I'm not saying that the government should never be able to take any action whatsoever against leakers. You know, as Brad mentioned, they do have a lot of tools in their tool chest beyond using the Draconian Espionage Act to put people in jail for decades. They can revoke people's clearances. They can fire them from their jobs. This is a, a very serious weapons that they can use to prevent leaks. Um, and in fact, this is what they used for almost 40 years, almost exclusively. It wasn't until the last 10 years that using the Espionage Act really became a regular thing. But, you know, to the question of are there leaks or have we seen leaks that gone too far, you know, I think that what we have seen is that in kind of screaming from the rooftops that uh, the sky is falling um, and that catastrophe will be brought uh, against this country. These fears uh, are exaggerated as well. We've seen that with Chelsea Manning. We've seen that with Edward Snowden. Even going back to the Daniel Ellsberg Pentagon Papers case, you know, the Solicitor General uh, made the argument in front of the Supreme Court that the Pentagon Papers, uh, the New York Times publishing the Pentagon Papers, would cause grave and irreparable harm to national security. Uh, the Solicitor General ended up disavowing his arguments a decade later, claiming that he never saw one iota of evidence that uh, any damage occurred. So certainly there are hypothetical situations where we could imagine that a leak could damage national security. But in practice, uh, this hardly ever happens. Just, I mean, just to follow up on there, the concept, and I know Trevor's made this argument, I understand where he's coming from. The concept of information being classified is not that disclosure of it will harm national security. It's always about the possibility that it will. We don't know what happens behind the scenes. So Chelsea Manning leaks cables, leaks various war logs. We don't know what was done behind the scenes to remedy any damage that's unquantifiable. We don't know what uh, promises and negotiations had to be had with various foreign governments or with various confidential informants to alleviate their concerns to make sure we still got the vital information out of it. You can't quantify that in the sense of saying, well, we don't know an informant, an informant didn't die. Okay, the informant didn't die, but now that informant's cut off as an ax a point of information, we no longer have whatever pieces of intel we could get out of that person. So yeah, no one was harmed, but the, so the concept of having broad access to information for purposes of protecting national security was infringed upon. And that's why the information was classified in the first place to avoid that possibility. I mean, I, th I think that Chelsea Manning is a perfect example here. I mean, uh, you know, when her leaks were coming out, the Obama administration said that people publishing the leaks would have blood on their hands, that she was putting lives at risk and that people would die. And then, you know, during her trial, it came out that actually no one was physically harmed from her leaks. And then when the Snowden revelations came out, uh, they were comparing the Snowden revelations or contrasting the Snowden revelations to Chelsea Manning, saying, well, Chelsea Manning, those leaks were not actually very harmful. It's the Snowden leaks that are that are incredibly harmful. 
Um, and then, you know, we had the uh, WikiLeaks disclosures uh, just six months ago about CIA hacking tools, uh, where there was a quote in BuzzFeed saying, well, you know, the Snowden leaks weren't that harmful, but these leaks, these are the worst ever. Um, and so we see this pattern over and over and over again, uh, where they keep making this argument that, uh, you know, uh, national security um, will be irreparably damaged, uh, that diplomacy will grind to a halt. And really, that doesn't ever happen. Um, you know, there was all sorts of talk about Chelsea Manning, how the U.S. will never be able to conduct diplomacy again because of her leak of cables. And of course, that never came to pass. And yet, we're still hearing that same argument about these two transcripts that the Washington Post published. Um, so I, you know, I, I wish these arguments were grounded in reality, um, but oftentimes they are exaggerated beyond belief. Well, I mean, I wouldn't disagree that there's some hyperbolic aspects to it, but I think it goes both ways. The idea, idea that there was no pot, there was no harm, there was no possibility of any harm, it was all benign, kind of you know glosses over the fact that neither you nor I nor anyone else in this room knows what happened behind the scenes. I, I think I think that's a fair point, um, and I and I don't want to say that no leak has ever caused any damage whatsoever. But I think if if this was an argument in the courtroom, that it wouldn't be. Well, if there was some benefit, then um, it's okay, or if there was, you know, some harm, then it, the, the defendant should have the book thrown at them. What we really need is a balancing test that looks at all aspects of the case. You know, how much benefit does the public get from these types of leaks, and how much harm uh, is there really? And unfortunately, we never get to actually have that conversation. It's all talked about in the hypotheticals beforehand, and then after the fact when nothing happens, we all just kind of forget about it. Well, I'll say, Trevor, you've got – there's a perfect, perfect case in which we can challenge and have all of this litigated in court all over the Supreme Court. There's a great you know, uh, case study. It's called Edward Snowden. He's got a great legal team. <laughs> he could come home and face those charges, and he can pr- litigate the constitutionality of the Espionage Act all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I have no doubt his legal team is qualified enough to do it. And what would happen? No one knows. No one knows. <laughs> I mean, let's put it this way. Every time it has been challenged by a leaker, the Espionage Act constitutionality with respect to leakers, people who had had access to classified information, who right. had a clearance and leaked it, has always been upheld. But it's never gotten up to Supreme Court, so we have no idea how the Supreme Court would view it. Would they determine, as individuals such as Trevor have said, that the statute is being misinterpreted, it's overbroad and overly vague? Possibly. I personally don't think it would, but I would like to see that type of finality. With respect well, to the court let's rule. take a lesser case. So the leaker of these transcripts that came out last week, if that person were identified, A, do you think DOJ would actually prosecute? And B, would they have a strong case? Because it would be very hard to argue that someone died over that. Diplomacy made harder, perhaps. Yeah. Well, first, we don't even know if the transcripts are technically classified. So by default, they, just because it's the president speaking with a foreign leader doesn't by default make the transcript classified. I could think of a couple different provisions under the relevant executive order mm-hmm. that might apply foreign government information, foreign diplomacy of the United States. So maybe parts of it are classified. So assuming it is, I think DOJ would have a feasible case, certainly, that obviously the transcript was leaked to the press. It was given to a person not authorized to access it. That's you know part and parcel, the Espionage Act, the relevant provisions for having leaked classified information, national defense information. I personally don't think DOJ would want to bother with it. I think they would defer. They'd say, no, we're not going to take that case on and just let the agency revoke the person's clearance. 
I still think, and this is just my personal speculation, that the document was leaked by someone at the National Security Council. I don't think it that came- seems to be where the yeah. allegations are that yeah. all the yeah. leaks are coming from these yeah. days. I don't think it came <laughs> from the deep state. Um, I think that something like that's closely held enough that it's probably with someone in the NSC, right. part of this ongoing warfare between the different camps within the White House and the Office of the Presidency over you know who's got the most authority, who's got the ear of the president. I think that's who the leaker was, and so you know. Warning to Jeff Sessions and to the president, you can do this crackdown all you want, but you're going to find a lot of your own people get caught up in it. Right. Why those two transcripts? I mean, this is just purely speculation. Jenna, do you have any why? why? I mean, certainly I do believe that they were newsworthy. Right. But why those two? Do you? I'm really not sure. I mean, I also think that there's a possibility that this kind of thing could have been a leak on the way out the door from the NSC. Ah, there were a couple um, exits from the NSC to, recently, to weren't there? To kind of provoke exactly the conversation that we're having right now. Well, let's see. On that note, um, if there are any members of the deep state out there, we're very curious what <laughs> Trump said to Vladimir Putin. I, I don't think we can actually solicit the transcript. No, um, don't so, do that. <laughs> so, yeah, just saying we're curious, um, curious minds. Uh, thank you for listening. And again, ER nerds, we love to hear from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Jenna, Brad, Trevor, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.